Welcome to Spacers. This is an interview that was recorded before South by Southwest 2015. Uh, this is an interview with content strategist Margot Bloomstein, and she's just a smart, positive person. Always enjoy talking to her. Uh, and of course, in, in this interview, we talk about content strategy, which is her specialty, but also that dress that went viral, if you remember that one, uh, which no one seemed to guess which color it was correctly in the photo. Uh, well, maybe you did. I, I totally botched my guess. So, uh, Some notes. If you haven't yet, there's still time to fly out and join me and wonderful speakers at CSS DevConf aboard the legendary Queen Mary in Long Beach, California for two days of wonderful web development and web building uh, techni- techniques and tips and tricks. Uh, check it out at csdevconf.com. Uh, if you can't fly out and meet us at uh, Long Beach, California, uh, join us virtually wherever you have a great internet connection at SAS Summit. Uh, again, it's just two days full of wonderful sessions, and each one is recorded. So uh, if you work it in the way, your friends in the way, family uh, things in the way, uh, you can go back to recordings and view it as often as you want. So uh, check it out, the sessions and everything, at sassummit.com. And if you would, please be sure to go to iTunes, search for Non-Breaking Space Show in the podcast area, and subscribe to Non-Breaking Space, uh, so that way you always get the latest show. And if you wouldn't mind, we are powered by stars, so if you could give us a five-star rated review, that'd be great. Uh, That's it for now, uh, and hope to see you next time. So this is a, your your company is Appropriate mm-hmm. Incorporated, is that right? Yep, Appropriate Inc. Because I'm all about the double entendre. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it's an awesome website. It looks great. Um, and you've you've written the book Content Strategy at Work. It's a great book. Um, how old is the book? As if you don't mind me asking. How long um, did you it, write it came out. <laughs> Why well, no, no people should never ask a book's age. <laughs> oh, <sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm horrified. <Yeah. laughs> oh my sensibilities. Yeah. Um, no, it came out uh, March 2012. So um, yeah, premiered at South by Southwest that year. So it's almost three years now. Okay, that's cool. And here, and then also on Twitter, on Twitter, here M Bloomstein on Twitter. Yes. There you go. And yes. then actually, we're you're actually talking about the dress. Uh, this is February twenty seventh, <laughs> and so uh, last night there was just the uh, the internet meltdown about yep. the color of the dress, right? So and, yes, uh, it was actually from my my understanding of the dress, this the scenario of the um, problem. With the dress is that uh, it was um, backlighting a dress. Uh, that it's people asking what the color changes. So depending on what your view, your monitor res- resolution of it, I could be totally wrong about that, but that's just the way I understand it. Is that, uh, <laughs> um, you, it could look blue and black, or it could uh, look golden white. And so here showing, uh, Myron has has the science of why no one agrees on the color of this dress and the fact that uh, you know uh, color is relative anyway to begin with. It's uh, you know it goes into all this science stuff like that so it's colors relative mm-hmm. so so if you really want to break yeah. down the internet chaos that was yesterday evening 
uh, why does that article the science of why no one agrees on the feather dress but i feel like um what was really interesting was when people i was reading the facebook and when facebook would take the image and put it into facebook i think they would crop it and make an image of it or whatever um mm -hmm. they would recalibrate the color palette somehow and it would uh make it white and gold but if you go back to the original photo it would it would backlight it was purple so that so but uh so today we're just talking about dresses for an hour and a half yeah, I, I loved how everyone was just uh, sharing screenshots of their Photoshop uh, yeah. color picker, just like, see, <laughs> it's blue, yeah. and people fighting about it. I saw someone tweet that him and his wife hadn't um, fought in a while about something, and they were like, thanks, <laughs> thanks, Jess. <laughs> well, well, I don't know, this morning, like, yeah, while the, while the color controversy was yesterday and all, this morning, watching so many brands clamor over each other to to say something relevant right. about color and their brand and how people perceive it and all, that yeah. was just killing me. I mean, I think last night I saw, I think it was Hyundai, tweeted out um, something about the color of their cars, yeah. and that was the oh first gosh. brand that I saw respond to it. Yeah. And personally, my first thought was, okay, good. That's obviously a brand that has empowered their social media team to to jump on things in a way that is on brand in the right editorial style and tone without having to monitor every tweet um so that's great but then by this morning by the time this morning rolled around and it was like you could see brands just sort of climbing over each other that was like halfway related yeah and maybe relevant right that was just like newsjacking is colorblind yeah. that was that was all i got out of it right. yeah. it didn't I mean, matter if you were seeing blue or black or yellow or gold or just idiots through your twitter stream that's what i saw <laughs> right i mean it's one thing to to uh, try to jack the news i guess like you say it's just as it's happening but to come back like 12 hours later in the morning like when you're like when your social media team like it happened at night so it was like if your social media team was on you know was working at night then you could you know you know work on top of it but it sounds like everyone just rolled in the morning and was like did you hear about this dress you know in the morning <laughs> so let's go talk about it so for on social media because yeah because we don't want to deal with real well real messages so yeah it's it's still right, right. the hashtag um like it's the top most oh it's the top most hashtag except for <laughs> spock spock is the only thing above right. the dress Oh. I know. Oh, Leonard yeah. Nimoy. That that's sad. Yeah. yeah. So that's it. That's the other other bit of news we have. Um, so, oops, pull up here. Is that uh, he passed away uh, today? Um, I was in a science museum today, so I think that was when I heard the news. But uh, that was oh. a little bit apropos. But um, yeah, uh, dies at eighty-three. Um, uh, just I don't. Uh, he. It's related to, from what I gather, he's uh, uh, confirmed his death, saying the cause was end-stage chronic obstructive pulmonary disease uh, related to smoking uh, that he stopped mm. 30 years ago, but he says he didn't stop soon enough. So, uh, mm. In a tweet he made earlier. Mm. Um, so, yeah, really sad that he's gone. Um, um, also, I'm kind of amazed because, um, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Uh, he retired from acting like two times. Um, that he wouldn't—he he retired from acting, but he we somehow got him into uh, two Star, Star Trek movies mm -hmm. uh, before he passed away. So right, but, uh, right. 
But yeah, he inspired a lot of people, a lot of, you know, he made Long Live and Prosper a thing that people know about. Um, and I would, I'm trying to wind my way to the fact that you definitely need to get his albums, his music albums and, and play them and enjoy them. So Yeah, he has like a, lot, a number of spoken word albums, right? Yeah. Um, no don't he and Shatner both have like a couple spoken word things? Yeah, so uh, iTunes can get the... Um, the, the double header combo of the Shatner and oh uh, Nimoy. Uh, so definitely like there's a song called the Hobbit that Nimoy has. Uh, it's really awesome. Uh, it's really great. Uh, the Alamo theater is, uh, is really cool in Austin. They do like when the Hobbit was playing, they would do uh, the music video of uh, Nimoy uh, singing the Hobbit. And so it was really awesome. So, um, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's awesome. But, um, uh, so definitely check it out. Um, also, you know, we're just Simpsons references, and stuff like that. just cultural <laughs> icon, really. So and it inspired a lot of people going forward. So. Yeah. But anyway. it was nice seeing him um, kind of like come back over the past few years to um, in a number of like advertisements and commercials. Like there was one that he did with um, with Zach Quinto, kind of both playing off the fact that they had played. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. So the thing that really got that kind of pressed me yesterday was uh, we had the we saw the llama situation, runway llamas. Uh, <laughs> we had the color dress issue, but then we also had uh, I think what was really more important was like the FCC uh, decided to uh, take over the internet pretty much and regulate the internet a little bit. So FCC approves net neutrality rules for open internet, and so I'm not sure how I feel about yeah. that. I don't know this this. I'm a little clue. I stepped out. I was kind of out of it for most of it. So I'm not sure if you, Margo, if you have an opinion on it was good or, or bad or, or whatnot. Um, I was really excited to see the, the end result. I don't know if the, if their ways of going about it though, were entirely ideal, but I understand what they did. And I guess by that, I mean, um, by taking steps to, to regulate it. Um, it falls in line with how the telephone industry has been um, kind of monitored and um, and how it's changed since the 1930s. So they're definitely um, treating it as a utility um, and, uh, and building on existing precedent. And I think that that, um, that's, that achieves the desired effect of making sure that um, everyone, regardless of their kind of financial stature um, and how they're perceived as a legal entity will have mm-hmm. equal access to it right. um, and uh, and download speeds and all of those types of things. Um, so I, I definitely agree with that effect. As far as how it's treated as um, a regulated or non-regulated utility, I don't know enough about that to know if, uh, if the route that they took with it and... Uh, those end goals are were the only way to do it, but I think it certainly makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Sam, do you have any, anything about that? As um, as far as as far as what I've looked into it, it was good news because of not uh, forcing people like like you said with the economic decisions or economic um, implications that that might have, mm-hmm. um, or that people should have to pay not only for their Netflix, I think somebody used this example, like you're paying for your Netflix subscription, but then you pay your internet provider Mm -hmm. to then have faster speed so that you can then 
use mm. Netflix, but it wouldn't be like for all of your sites. If somebody said it would be broken down by those right. individual services. And that just seemed like a lot of over-regulation. And I don't right. think that no regulation should be the thing either, but just like finding the happy medium. But I think when it's been the way that it is, it's really hard to go in one direction or another. Right. But it also kind of freaked me out. The same um, article that you just pulled up on the screen was the one that I saw yesterday. And it was kind of weird seeing the hand-holding part <laughs> of it. Um, and also that something like that is a three to two vote that just seems like a very like too oh, well, close too close for my comfort level well look a lot of freedoms that we take for uh, granted today just came down to like one vote going one way or another you know yeah. so so it's it's that's kind of a, there's a pattern of that happening in, in yeah. this country at least so it's, it's 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 amazing how like just i don't know it's crazy how that happens but um yeah so i didn't know anything about well, it like, I, Yes, go ahead, Marco. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't know that how that decision came down. I don't know that that breakdown, the three to two ruling, is actually that surprising. I mean, I think it's definitely disappointing. Yeah. Um, but when we look at how Republicans have been so dead against anything that even um, maybe opposes their their own party credo and um, runs in opposition to how they've historically looked at individual rights yeah. versus corporate regulation. Mm -hmm. um, this ruling, it it runs in the face a lot of how it, it runs in the face of how the Republican Party has historically operated, like the pre-Reagan era Republican Party. But I think that it is completely in line with how it's operated during the Obama era, where mm -hmm. if Obama's supporting something, <laughs> most Republicans are going to fall in line and not support it, even if it goes against historically believed as a party, right. which I think is unfortunate, but this decision I don't think is surprising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, like the, the Comcast example is that uh, the idea is that uh, Amazon could pay a ton of money, uh, like, for like for video streaming. And so they could advertise that they have faster video streaming while like Netflix would be locked out and um, depending on, on your uh, cable box. That, that was like one example. But um, then also the fact that uh, the other problem is that uh, with Europe, uh, I was I saw like an, a, a clip of it yesterday. This is great. Uh, but how there there's access to Internet. That's great. It's over there, but there's not as fast as it is over here in terms of your mobile speed network telecoms. However, we still pay like a ton more money mm -hmm. for that. And they don't have as much wire or fiber going into their office and some of that. But uh, you know, the, the, the flip side is that Google is actually spending a ton of money and time of time trying to get Google fiber set up at, at least what, eight cities now uh, going up. And so that's as opposed to, you know, AT&T and other companies, not, you know, just charging arm and leg for, for, for basic broadband. So I don't know. I'm not sure how it breaks down. So anyway, so that gives me to, I, I asked Simon St. Laurent, who actually works at uh, O'Reilly, who's actually smarter than I am, uh, what he thought, thought of it. And so he actually recommends this book, um, The Master Switch, The Rise and Fall of Information Empires. And so it's cut, it's based off of AT&T, the story of AT&T and the monopolies and what kind of history, like the history, like we're talking about in the 1930s and stuff like that too. So um, so I've, I've got it downloaded and I'm ready to read it, but he says uh, it's, a, it's a good book and a good book to see how 
what what it is you know like a good good way to to put in a good frame so i actually just got it today so i'm going to check it out probably talk about it later on probably get simon on the show later on and talk about it just because i because i feel like with the uh with, with our con- congress they've our politicians have mastered the art of naming things that on bills that you don't want to hear you know that are really bad for you so like this bill sounds really awesome and then they actually passes it and like oh wait mm-hmm. all right cool and then um that's about it and, and internet news this week is one time besides llamas Margot, uh so glad you're here i just want to see just gonna start off focus on you for the next uh <laughs> next, you know portion of the show uh the question that we always ask people is how do we uh, how do you get into the web? Like what was your, your first exposure to the web and what made you decide to have a career on the web? Have you guys seen the movie Snowpiercer? And we were just talking about yeah. Netflix and what right now. Um, it's, it's not the best movie, but it is compelling <laughs> and whatnot. Um, yeah. There's some big plot issues. One of the lines in it, uh, one of the characters turns to another one and calls her a train baby because everyone is on this train. They've been on it. 17 years she's never known a life before being on this train and i kind of think life on the internet um because when i graduated college it was height of the dot-com era um like most of my friends were going to work um in the internet economy and i was certainly don't no different internship um, in a design agency probably around 93, 94 um, when I was still in high school. And that was more focused on print design and solving problems through typography and mm-hmm. um, and layout and whatnot and really kind of traditional aspects of print design. And then uh, by the time I graduated college, um, I studied uh, communication design at Carnegie Mellon and then moved into content strategy. And my first job out of school was at Sapient. I know um, you guys interviewed Karen McGrain recently, um, and she talked about coming out of her master's program and going directly to Razorfish and um, the time those years to go to. And uh, the team that I joined there at Sapient um, in their Cambridge office was their creative services team within the, or the content strategy team within their creative services team. And um, so when people say content strategy is new, I always kind of look at them kind of strange because I feel like, no, I've, I've been working in it for about 15 years now. And wow. at the time, the team was called content strategy. I feel like it was half at copywriting um, and other parts uh, really about structured content, even though we didn't always call it that, but it was still about imposing consistency and editorial style and tone, um, but at times without the platform to maintain and run. So now when we talk about structured content, it's certainly come a long way. Oh, what made you switch from the, the design side? And I hate to use the word switch as if it's like two completely different unrelated things, but what kind of made you move away from the design focus to the content side? Um, Well, at the time, I mean, I think that really a lot of the the questions that I was starting to ask both within the communication design program and then as I was interviewing with different agencies, a lot of the questions that I was asking for how they would interact with their clients and how they would solve their client problems were really content questions and and workflow questions. And I didn't know that that was content strategy, but eventually, and it was actually through the process of interviewing, 
I met with uh, some folks on the design and information architecture teams at Sapient, and they asked how I would solve a problem. Um, and I started proposing different ideas, and they were like, that's great, but you need to talk with the folks in content strategy about that. Because I think I started mm -hmm. talking about like target audiences and um, communication goals and um, uh, and some of like their choices around verbal style and that sort of thing and the chunks of content that they would be working with. And uh, and then in my next interview, I met with their head of content strategy and um, and she took a great, wonderful chance on me. Um, that was Kristen Connor and she still works in content strategy and creative direction. And um, she was a wonderful mentor to me. Um, a lot of folks on the team there were just tremendous, tremendous mentors. And, um, and then I quickly learned that a lot of the skills that I had developed in design around visual problem solving, mm -hmm. I was still engaged in problem solving, but rather than um, then approaching them through approaching those issues through typography choices and decisions around color and the density of information on the page. Instead, I was sort of pulling other levers around style and tone, um, diction, content mm -hmm. types, all of those types of things. Cool. Yeah, well, I want to talk. I want to talk about that. Like the when you pull other levers um, as a content strategist, like you know, tone. Like what problems? Like you. Know, can you just explore that more? Like what, what type of uh, techniques do you use and what type of problems do they solve? Because I, I just find that just so fascinating. Sure. I think um, my answer, when organizations first reach out to me, it's because something that they're doing isn't achieving Maybe they uh, for a long time um, and they're trying to reach another audience and feel like their messaging is just hitting, falling on deaf ears um, and not getting anywhere. Um, or maybe they feel like, you know, they into Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest. In other cases, it's because they say, you know, uh, our parts of our brand, maybe our existing print collateral, but we just keep pouring the same money in and we've always done the same things. Right. Um, and we don't know if we should be shifting in other ways. I'm working with a, a higher ed institution right now that's going through that kind of challenge. They've always produced a view book. They've always produced a big course catalog. Now, a lot of those things are online and all, um, mm -hmm. but there's still parts of their faculty that very much focus on, on those types of tools um, and have always focused on those sort of vehicles and channels to reach their target audience. Now they're starting to say, well, what if our target audience is shifting? What if the people that have always historically come to us, the students that have always come to us for our strength in very traditional subjects, what if they're interested in maybe more, um, more innovative avenues of education now? What if they wanna be exploring things from really radical angles? are we still projecting those sort of strengths? And they may know, and their faculty may know, but if that doesn't come out in their messaging in a consistent, um, clear, and accurate way, then their audience isn't going to know that. And if their audience doesn't know it, they may look to another institution and say, that school's great, but it's not for me. And if they don't want to lose those students before they've even had a chance to convince them that, yes, this is the place for you, mm -hmm. they need to look at their content. 
So some of the um, the techniques and whatnot that I'm using to work with them on, that all starts with first developing their message architecture and helping them figure out what their communication goals are. And if it's more important to look innovative or entrepreneurial, maybe more so than looking traditional and established and, and all those other things that a lot of um, a lot of schools typically embrace, but maybe aren't always right for their their students and, and their prospective students. So is communication goal the same as how you want to be perceived or like you know you talk about uh do we talk do we come across as innovative or do you, is there like something more finite or more uh quantifiable than that i guess when i talk about an organization's communication goals i'm looking at um at the brand attributes that they want their target audience to to feel for them kind of in their hearts and minds that they want to have associated with them i think for a lot of for a lot of brands that don't have that clear sort of sense of self, that don't have clear communication goals and a clear hierarchy of, of those messages, if you were to strip away their their logo and maybe their, their color scheme from their website and print collateral and Twitter stream and all those things, if you were to do that, I don't know that you could look at their content and still identify who they who they were. Um, right. I think because in many industries, a lot of brands, once you take away their logos, mm-hmm. they, they kind of look and sound the same. And it's because they don't have clear communication goals. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there are definitely great exceptions to that. Like, for example, we can look at the airline industry and see how brands like JetBlue um, versus Virgin versus kind of the old standbys of like US Air and United mm-hmm. and whatnot we can see how they focus on communicating their brands in very, very different ways through the choice of channels in which they're very active, um, as well as through things like editorial style and tone. And that's great. It's great that you can take away JetBlue's logo and take away the logo of Southwest. And then if you look at, say, their Twitter streams, Mm -hmm. you still, you can tell who's who because they sound Mm -hmm. very, very different. That's a powerful thing. How do you, um, talking about goals for a second, um, does it happen frequently? I know it happens with design a lot. Does it happen in content a lot where their goals aren't necessarily what the goals should be? So I think of Marty Neumeier's, um, he's a brand strategist and a, um, a writer. And in one of his books, I think it's uh, When They Zig Zag. Um, and he says, uh, gosh, it just slipped my mind. Um, it's not what you think um you are it's what they think it is i think paraphrasing and kind of that the reputation is the brand not what you think you're putting out there so from the content side is that something that you have to pull clients in a lot and be like well do you think you might be doing this but this is actually what's happening um yes and no i think there's a lot of branding that is um that's aspirational, and it should be, because typically when when an organization reaches out for help on content strategy or help on design or, or all of the above, it's because they want to communicate something different. So it shouldn't mm-hmm. be about just what they are now or how they've always been. Instead, it needs to be more about, well, where do you want to go? Let's skate mm-hmm. to where the puck is going and get you there as well. Um, so I think there's that opportunity to say, well, regardless of how it's always been, who do you want to be when you grow up? 
<laughs> and of course, we have to kind of lay that groundwork and say, all right, this is how people currently perceive you. Mm-hmm. How are we going to, to shift their perception? And what can you start doing on a repeatable, regular basis so that they'll believe that as well? Um, so I think there is that element to it. But um, but yeah, I mean, what Marty writes is, is definitely true, too, in that um, we can only, as professional communicators, we can only do and shape and influence so much. Mm-hmm. I think when a, when a brand is kind of contributing to a, a shared space with their audience, that sort of rhetorical arena between the target audience and, and the speaker, um, mm-hmm. oh, the, the audience is bringing just as much into that space as we are. Um, and they're bringing baggage and past experiences and existing perceptions to the table too. So yeah, we can't control it, but we can certainly influence things. And I think that's where, that's where the opportunity is. So have you ever had to like uh, tell a client, like um, if they, if they hire you as a consultant, they'd they be more open and willing, but sometimes that's not the case where they, they hire you and they, they, um, they have a, a definite endpoint in mind, but sometimes if they hire you, do, do they, is it, are they open to say like, this is uh, you know, kind of like a self-assessment, like this is not where you actually are. You're actually way different than where you, your content is. And let's, let's get it to where you're actually going. Is that, you ever had those discussions with clients where like, you you really have it, <laughs> you don't understand your, what you're outputting out there is actually not what you're actually saying or. I would say most of the, 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 the sort of reality checks that I have with them are brand perception and usually more around quality of content. And I guess that's because maybe we're not focusing so much on brand perception, so much brand, uh, a nice sort of fantastical place. It's kind of like that um, Henry David Thoreau comment that it's great that you've built castles in the air. That's where they should be. Strategy is about castles in the air, that they want to be perceived in a certain way and they have lofty goals. Mm. Now we need to make sure that realistic to achieve. I feel like a lot of the, the sort of reality check conversation I have with them are around and go one of two ways. Usually they'll come in and they'll say, all, all of our content is horrible. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, this is they're so wildly off uh, because usually what happens is as we get into the process and maybe go through a content audit that's both qualitative and quantitative, then we can start asking, is your content any good? And okay, what makes it good? How do we define good? Right. And that's usually a very telling question because I think for some organizations when they say, oh, all of our content is terrific, right. it's engaging, <laughs> yeah. whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it got a certain number of clicks. Okay, did those clicks translate into sales or whatever they're in business to be doing? Or in other cases, when they say it's good, it's because it's up to date and doesn't have any typos in it, which should be a really, really low bar. Um, that should be kind of table stakes for any kind of organization that's trying to speak with others. But we know that it's not always the case. Um, so I think a lot of times when we're having those discussions of, what's aspirational and what's real. Mm-hmm. It's usually around the quality of the content itself rather than kind of where they want things to go. I think that um, for many organizations, their goals around where they'd really love to go, those things, um, they, they might be uh, lofty, but they're usually not unattainable. Yeah, so, you know, so so definitely you just you go in there and say, 
if I say like our content is terrible because we're not uh, getting enough links or click-throughs, uh, what would you say would be my yeah? Where would you start uh, from there? Like, like what would be the major problem that I would I would have? Like, how would you address that issue, or like, where would you where do you start with? I I think I would start by asking why. Why do you want more links or click-throughs? Mm-hmm. Uh, just because they make me feel great. Like, what's the value of that? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> they just make you feel awesome. That more clicks. That's all. Uh, yeah. Well, I want to have clicks to. Uh, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's. Re- I feel great when people come to my site. That's awesome. Uh, but no, let's say like I need clicks to uh, to get conversions. You know, and uh, more more people seeing the content means more ad exposures, more you know videos and so that more 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 videos and so that. So yeah. I guess I don't know what that means. Like, why do you want to have more of those? And if you're an organization that's in business to mm-hmm. to sell a certain number of products or mm-hmm. to have more loyal customers, so more sales to existing customers, mm-hmm. um, or if you're in business to try to maybe you're you're running a conference or something and you're trying to attract more attention that results in more registration for that conference. I think we always have to ask, okay, just because clicks or uh, or link backs or something like that Mm -hmm. are are sort of like this hot currency right now, Mm -hmm. we have to ask, what does it translate to? Does it actually help you reach your goal, selling more stuff or attracting more customers or or registering more, um, more clients? And I think there's a fundamental gap in a lot of organizations between the metrics of social media. Yeah full metrics of hard sales. And we can't forget that that latter component because if what we're doing doesn't at the end of the day on visibility and popularity and engagement, right. like those are all lovely things. Who doesn't want to be popular? Right. But um, what does it actually get you? It, yeah. I mean, I'm not a fan of Cuba Gooding Jr. I think he's a, a bad actor, but I think this is kind of the show me the money moment <laughs> in in content marketing and in social media. All right. So I think that the news bomb is that the Oscar winning actor, Gooding Jr. <sighs> I can't believe I just quoted him. Too. <laughs> uh, All right. So, uh, you know, he was at that movie snow dogs. I don't know if you guys saw that. I think it was no. called snow dogs. And I was so excited about that because I saw these billboards and these ads that had talking dogs in them. And I'm a huge dog person. And I was like, talking dogs, this is the best thing ever committed to film. And then I was like, why do they have to ruin it for me with him? I think oh, he's ugh, not a fan. Not a fan. Okay. Well, then he's never going to listen to the show. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I doubt he's listening to the show. <laughs> the No Cuba Green Drink Club. That's what we have. Yeah. That's our tagline. Yeah. Give me more more talking dogs, please. Give the heck. Yeah. So let's just say, uh, you know, I'm just gonna give you a hypothetical. I'm a I'm a I am a, a social media site, um, but I uh, I update daily uh, as much as I can uh, about pop culture events like llamas, the color of dresses, and uh, you know so forth and so much on the. Uh, Topics of the day, uh, so my content varies, uh, but I also want to sell T-shirts at the same time. So I want to. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what my. Uh, what would you, you know? Is is that like? 
a sandpit of a of a terrible idea that needs content strategy, or would that just just yeah? You know, where would you start from that? I guess. Is this an existing site or new business venture that you're contemplating? It's an existing site, you know. Just there's, uh, just you know, I'm out there, just you know, just publishing. You know, every time there's a Facebook trend, I'll just I'll just do a clip, a, a quick hundred post word posts out there and just and see what see and just push it out there. And smack that meme on a T-shirt and get it out there before <laughs> any of your competitors. That type of thing. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe like I have a really cool T-shirt idea, and I just want like put it out there. Or that. So, but you know, but the translation is that, you know, per like million click-throughs, I'll sell T-shirts or something like that. So, like, but I want I want to rip that thing up. I mean, is that really is that really a bad example for you, or is that just not that really good? Because I guess uh, what are, what's the problem that you'd want to solve with that? <laughs> uh, yeah. I really want to change my business model. Probably is my my problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So. I guess what I really want to know is um, just what type of techniques you use to to help clients and and um, just specific. And I know there's certain tools for certain to get to certain uh, answers. And so I, I want to uh, not be too vague about it, but I feel like I, I totally went there in that vague vague area with that with my with my, my, uh, my my solution. But I just like if you could just give an overview of some of the some some of the, like techniques that you use like when talking to the clients and and doing content stuff because I know Karen McGreen talks about chunking content and um, so she talks about like you know uh, definitely having you know having a small you know like a one line uh, bit of content for TV episodes usually the TV guide episode of you know mm-hmm. one sentence summary for, for episodes a three sentence summary for episode and a whole paragraph for episodes or TVs and so the TV guide now can can broadcast a different episode summaries depending on the medium and chunking of, of content that way so um but yeah so if if you know what type of techniques do you use when when talking to clients and, and how can and, and and what in what techniques work in situations that are great and which which are which are not so in general i guess when i when i start to work with a client and like to use your example of the the social media site that's pulling in a lot of news and generating t-shirts and whatnot as well. Um, I guess I'd want to know what the business model and the business vision there are. (laughs) Um, Kind of holding that all together there. Um, But uh, I typically start out by asking them like, what, what is their vision for the business? Like looking out to three, four, five years. Um, Is it that they're going for some kind of like short-term customer acquisition and then looking to be, um, and then looking to sell or something? Mm -hmm. Are they going to um, like in search of expanding their target audience, maybe shifting their target audience Mm -hmm. um, or even like shifting the the main thing for which they're known, for which their brand is known. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly a lot of organizations are in that position that maybe they've made their name in a certain space and then are looking to make a lateral move. Maybe they've Mm -hmm. uh, begun kind of by focusing on um, on military contracts and they're eager to move into a more consumer-friendly space, maybe mm-hmm. by repurposing existing technology. Mm-hmm. I think when we have those kinds of challenges in front of us, it's important to kind of get on the table, like, all right, so where do we need to go over mm-hmm. the length span, over the time that um, whatever particular channel we're targeting might be serving you um, and I find in general when we look at something along like two years or so yeah. we're able to say all right so where should we start making those investments what content 
can we shift or repurpose or or maybe have our eyes on for using it in a different way? Mm. From there, that's where I'll typically start by saying, all right, so let's look more at your communication goals yeah. um, and help them put together a message architecture. And there's a few different ways that we can get at that. But I find that without that, without understanding their hierarchy communication goals, it's really tough to measure if their existing content is helping them or hurting them, if it is any good for however they're defining good. And without knowing the value of their existing content, Mm -hmm. It's tough to say, well, what should they be doing differently? Right. Um, I, I liken it a lot to uh, to sort of a metaphor of like if you open up your refrigerator and you're mm -hmm. like, I don't I don't know what I should be making for dinner tonight. Um, mm -hmm. But you see a lot of random ingredients. You don't know if they're any good. I mean, you can look at their expiration dates and maybe that's one way to say, are these good? Mm -hmm. But you don't know if they're relevant for whatever sort of meal you have in mind. Or maybe mm -hmm. if you're having friends over, do you know if they're vegan? Do you know if they're vegetarian? Are they keeping kosher? What sort of rules do you need to apply to this? What are your goals for the meal? I think the same applies to when we're looking at content. Like content can be perfectly current, but it may not be relevant anymore. Or right. it might be really great, factually accurate, um, but entirely the wrong content types for a channel that you're targeting. Uh, maybe you've always published things in the form of white papers, and they're great, and they really establish your brand as being very um, studious and erudite and respected, but maybe you're trying to shift to be seen as being more hip and fun and engaging, and those white papers just aren't going to fly when your target audience or the audience you'd like to have is on Facebook. White so there's those kind hip. of challenges that we can face. Yeah, yeah it's, it's <laughs> tough to get people to love those PDFs. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, and I love the fridge metaphor because any food metaphor, uh, I I grok instantly. So that's yeah. Okay. But, um, <laughs> so yeah. So, um, so I can see like as a content strategist or like as what you do, uh, uh, you, you in order to help people, you need to know where they want want to go. Like the whole castles in the sky thing. You want to like. Uh, in order for me to know if the ingredients or the content that you have in your fridge right now are, are worthwhile, uh, I need to know where you want to go two to five years from now or, you know, what, what you want to go. And then I could say, like, okay, then, then you can ascertain what content that you have is now is, is, is relevant. And so um, your, your goal is like, hey, do you, do you want to be bought? Do you want to shift uh, brands? Do you want to shift to uh, open up to more, more, more markets? Is or is or more industries that you want to do that. So how so if you were to know so you use that as a marker is like where you want to go as the marker and then you use it as a judge of of how well the content a client has is right now. Is that good? Right. Right. And I think without knowing an organization's goals, without under, fully understanding its message architecture, mm. you can't possibly know if the content they have is any good. Mm. Um, and you can't possibly understand, well, what content do they need to have? And if that's something that you can achieve by repurposing existing content, repackaging it for different channels, or if it's something that they need to create from scratch. And then I, I would say we can also go a step further to say when um, – when organizations are looking to hire into a content team, hire into their marketing team, unless they know the kinds of content they need to be creating, so unless mm -hmm. they've already figured out their communication goals, it's really tough to understand, well, what sort of skill set should you be hiring for? Do you need a crack content strategist? Do you need a really wonderful copywriter or a ghostwriter? 
Or maybe instead you need somebody that's more skilled at videography or in creating custom photography for the brand. Or maybe you should be taking that budget instead and just socking it into stock photography. Right. I mean, I think those are all options that can help you achieve similar goals. Okay. Um, but unless you understand what you're trying to communicate, it can be really difficult to allocate those resources appropriately. Right. Well, I mean, like, I so content strategist is also like a content creator because, like, when you talk about uh, seeking money into stock photos or, or, or like making videos, from the, I think of those as content creation. Is that also a content strategist job as well? I think it depends on the company and on the content strategist. Mm -hmm. I'd say in uh, when we say that it's uh, the process of planning for the creation and aggregation, um, governance and expiration of content that is useful, usable and appropriate to a brand. That all talks about planning for those things. So looking at the process, the workflow, are the right people in place. But the actual act of executing on content strategy, which might be copywriting, it might be photography, it might be um, working as an art director, to that falls more execution, which falls more into content marketing. Um, or I should say that's execution that can at times spin off into content marketing. Okay. Content marketing is one way of executing on a content strategy, but then there's other types of content that need to be created beyond just marketing or beyond just content designed to influence sales. Um, so, I mean, we can look at other content types such as instructional copy and error messaging, um, nomenclature. Those are all aspects of content that someone has to think about as well and to go through the appropriate process in order to do so. So I would say um, the lines blur a little bit in there, but then when you uh -huh. talk to specific content strategists or individual content strategists, some of us do focus on the execution side as well. So there I think it comes down to more who's in the role, what's their skill set, what are their particular preferences. Yeah, definitely. So it's about execution versus, you know, it, it, I guess it would depend on, on the scenario that you have. So so let's say you have a company that wants to, uh, I don't know, it's, I feel like it's a little too big maybe to be bought in two years, but maybe shifting brands would probably be a bigger, bigger, bigger way. Like they want, they want to shift to a more hipper brand or, or more, um, more self-awareness in the industry that they want to do. So and take the, take the brand to a different level. And so that would mean um, you talked about earlier about how you might have to shift the tone of the content uh, and to be more more hipper preach, you know, like say say they have really solid class A white papers. So that's a very like you know they definitely you know take that content out of PDF and 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 mold that. So would that just go down to thinking about um, how to how to take that content or generate new content? new strategies and then allocate like a budget and uh, see who executes that. Is that like, is that a typical content strategist scenario or, or not? So I just, um, I'm coming from yeah, this, I like, think, um... as I, I'm kind of like this from a total, like, uh, just so you know, like I'm a, I'm a design background, uh, do a little bit, you know, programming here or there, but so I'm more of a generalist, so I don't really specialize in a lot of things. So like, I'm really trying to like ask you, uh, just to see if this helps you with your answer, just like what are the tools that you use to like mm -hmm. really get into the nitty gritty and um, uh, and pick apart things so like you actually have like a very comprehensive content strategy to it. So, so if that helps. 
in the example that you gave, if an organization's maybe got this wealth of, of white papers and they're saying, but we need to make this uh, more accessible maybe to a, a younger, hipper audience or to reposition our brand to seem a bit hipper and more in touch. Yeah. Um, I think I would start probably by by taking a look at those white papers. Just because they have a lot of them doesn't mean that they're any good. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So again, how do we define good? So is the content in those white papers, is it current? Is it still relevant for the, the big themes that they want to address in their industry? Mm -hmm. um, and also is the tone right for their messaging? Uh, in many industries um, that, uh, that oftentimes create position papers, um, we see issues around lots and lots of passive voice and yeah. lots and lots of long nominalizations and long sentences, mm -hmm. um, which can be great for establishing a brand as um, very immovable and uh, and established and, um, and, and traditional, but mm -hmm. may not play well beyond that. So mm -hmm. we may need to kind of translate those things first just to get them into the right style yeah. and tone. And then from there, we can start looking at, well, what are the big themes in the existing content? Can we extract certain points, maybe certain bits of their thought leadership and spin them out into a series of tweets instead? Mm -hmm. Is it maybe good information that would play really well in a podcast if we got the original writer or um, or somebody that's equally a good subject matter expert right. to instead talk about the same concepts, but in this kind of more oral presentation uh, mm -hmm. that should instead become um, become a keynote presentation that they can take on the road and through a lot of different conferences and other events. Um, should we be spinning out that same information that way? Okay. There's um, that continuum um, that you're probably familiar with of data, information, knowledge, and wisdom. And I think when we look at content that's already kind of locked up in, um, in existing content types, like a white paper, right. what we're looking at is a lot of data and a lot of information mm -hmm. um, but the that knowledge level that's sort of locked within the content type we can take that same information and spin it out in different ways to create new knowledge from it depending on the channel and which we're sharing it so I think there's always that kind of opportunity and oftentimes the both the the style and tone and format of content in those channels yeah. as well as the choice of channel itself those decisions contribute to then how the brand is perceived. In other words, if you say something in a, in a shorter sentence with uh, really strong active verbs leading the way, and right. you say it on Twitter, even though there might be the same information in those 140 characters as you had in a full-on paragraph in that white paper, right. because the tone is different and the choice of channel is different, mm -hmm. the perception that goes back to the brand then can change as well. Right. So I think there's those kinds of opportunities. And as far as the tools to get there, yeah. um, a lot of it comes down to a, a lot of time-consuming, unsexy stuff of taking <laughs> yeah. existing content and weeding through it and bringing it into a spreadsheet and cataloging all of the different bits within it. And that's a lot of what goes on in structured content, probably a lot of what Karen talks about mm -hmm. as well in going from kind of blobs to chunks, going from like big content sets and breaking it down into its constituent parts so that we can then tag it and reuse it appropriately. There's that step before reuse of translating it as well, making sure that it's in the right style and tone for the medium, 
Wow. Okay. For the channel. So um, like, but I think that's all kind of a part of wrestling with structured content. Right. So is that like content analysis, like in terms of like you just go through all your mediums and stuff, all the content that's out there and you kind of like catalog as to where it is and uh, what it says uh, and then how long it is. Is that sort of like a typical content analysis or say like all the meta information that goes along with, with that? That's like that's part of the content auditing process. When I said yeah. before, um, it's both a qualitative and quantitative process. Mm -hmm. Typically, when we're going through a content audit, we're saying, well, what do we have and where does it live? If it's copy, how many characters is it? What are they associated? If it's an image, how big is it? Maybe what is it content? Adding that as well, kind of more fully informing it. Um, also, how does it relate to similar content around it? One of the examples that I tend to look at a lot, um, just because you see this in both higher ed websites as well as and consulting websites, um, are the issues of staff bio. Because that's it's a content type that everybody kind of gets. Like usually if you go to like the About Us section on a website, headshots from higher ed institutions. You can click over to um, say like a department's uh, about us section or the list of faculty and the variety that you see in there can be astounding. Maybe some people have never bothered to get a current headshot. Uh, maybe um, some faculty members have really, really long bios and in other cases they're really short. Yeah. And that that's very revealing because the, the perception that it sends is first one of inconsistency. Right. And also it may send the message that people with really long bios are far more important than people yeah. that only have very short biographies. Yeah. Oftentimes it's the complete opposite case. It's just the people with really short bios are so busy and so entrenched in their industries. They haven't had time to fill out the silly form or, or to add that into the CMS. Right. Okay. So we can learn a lot from that. And that all comes through then in the content audit. Yeah. I mean, and I think there are, there are pretty simple content type that everybody understands, but they, mm -hmm. um, they reveal a lot about the organizations that publish them. Right. How early are the content um, audits in the process? Is that really close to kickoff? Is that right after maybe an initial interview where you are figuring out what the business model is and the goal is? I'm kind of curious just where in the the timeline of, of working or consulting on content does the content audit happen? That usually happens pretty early on. Um, and I would say it's also, it's never too early to start thinking about your content and start thinking about your content types. Even if you don't yet start thinking about copy or specific mm -hmm. imagery. Um, and I know for a long time when we were kind of having that debate of mobile first or content first, there was a lot of wrangling around that. And I think for most people, we were kind of arguing for the same thing. Like, let's think about what our communication goals are first. Um, I actually wrote a piece uh, about a year ago that appeared in print magazine that talked about communication goals first, why we need to lay that foundation in order to make better design decisions and better content mm -hmm. and copy and, and imagery decisions and channel decisions later on. So early on in the project, um, we can start discussing those communication goals, establish the message architecture. And then as soon as we've reached that point, then we can conduct that content audit um, to better inform information architecture, um, resources around design, resources around content creation. The thing is, if the content audit reveals that, yes, all of your content is current, but the tone is wildly off or mm -hmm. um, or that it's really all very poorly written, 
that clues us in a lot about the budget moving forward, the sort of resources we need moving forward. I mean, maybe it turns out that all of your copy is terrific. That never happens, but maybe that happens. And uh, maybe it turns out all of the copy is terrific. So really, we should be allocating more budget around photography and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So how uh, when it does come to this sort of audit uh, scenario, are other players a part of that process? Or is that something kind of that content people need to figure out first? Um, and I mean, other players like designers or perhaps developers, people that may have to touch that content, um, an editor of a podcast or that audio um, whoever the copywriter is, are they a part of the, the auditing process as well? And also, I want to piggyback off of that one, if you don't mind, just like uh, as a content strategist and doing content, uh, like for brand also, like uh, do you have to look at a brand, like the designer uh, has a logo or new logo or new, new thing? Do you, do you work in tandem with the creation of a new brand or do you do a content or would a company sh- uh, sometimes hire you after they come up with a new brand and say, our new content needs to be hip and bold, like this new logo or something like that. So. I hate the answer that it depends, but I guess it depends on the, on the project like as well coming. as on the content strategist. <laughs> yeah, I know for, for me, because my background is in design, on many projects, I'll oftentimes um, work at the very least, I'll work closely with the designers. Mm-hmm. On some projects, um, depending on the other individuals on the team, I'll play more the role of creative director slash content strategist, especially if there's more junior designers on the team, because um, I like mentoring as well. Um, typically, we'll start out with that message architecture, and those communication goals should really be fueling both design and content choices, uh, because we want the experience to be consistent and cohesive visually and verbally. I think we've all Mm -hmm. opened up magazines um, or seen print collateral that maybe looks one way and sounds completely different, and it creates Mm -hmm. this really kind of weird, dissonant experience for for the user. I don't even know if you can call it a cohesive user experience at that point. It's just sort of jarring. Um, So I'll typically work really closely with, uh, with the design team. And I think especially as we're establishing those communication goals and then seeing how we want to run with them, kind of moving Mm -hmm. beyond the content audit, that has to be a very collaborative process. And then moving forward as we're figuring out, well, what are the right content types? What should they say as well as how should they look? We need to be going back and forth and having those conversations a lot of not just what's the right style and tone, but also what's the right typeface in in which to engage the audience. so there's constantly that that kind of collaboration and give and take. And I think, um, Christopher, to answer your question about um, like how how content and design influence each other, I think like for the example of like relaunching a brand, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, because a brand is so much more than a logo, but we also have to think about, well, what does it need to communicate? Yeah. We have to be thinking, well, should the language feel really a brand? and choppy than mellifluous and then what's the right kind of color scheme what's the right sort of texture um, and graphic language to communicate all of those same qualities it isn't going to work if those ideas and concepts aren't coming from the same place and that place is the message architecture and i love the phrase i love the term message architecture and um i just so it's message architecture uh all the placement of the brand and design and the voice and the tone, 
all coming together? Is that is that the message architecture? Well, the message architecture is just the hierarchy of communication goals. What do they want to communicate, and is it more important to sound accessible or approachable or very elite? And then from there, that gives us sort of the audit and to establish uh, and more decisions about governance as far as who should be updating things and at what frequency and what are the big themes on which they should be hitting. Mm-hmm. The the themes in the editorial calendar, we should be able to trace all the way back to the message architecture. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just a matter of just, just simply jumping at whatever llama drama is in the news today. Llama <laughs> <laughs> drama. So, uh, so <laughs> governance, governance is the issue, right? So, so is that like a sticky... Sticky widget, like you have to deal with stakeholders and and like who has control of of the content uh, creation, right? So who gets uh, final say? Is that, is that a part of review for the content strategist? Yeah, I think I feel like um, governance is one of those areas where where content strategy confronts its greatest element of reality, that we're not simply recommending, oh, you should do this and start publishing a blog, but we also have to say, well, how? And who's going to be doing that? And what's the editorial workflow for them? Will the same person be creating blog posts as we'll also be reviewing them and approving them? Is the, the CMO writing everything? And if so, really, how, how are they in charge of other aspects of marketing then? Um, so I think governance is kind of where we where we prove the validity and the value of content strategy, um, and it can also be the the more challenging part of any project. I think when we have um, or when you hear of content strategy initiatives that only address maybe a content management system when they're kind of all caught up in the hardware and the software, they miss that the place where most content lives and dies is with the wetware. It's with the people that are. We're, that we're asking to perform all, all of those. So, um, yeah, I, I think getting back to kind of the issue of collaboration on most projects, I usually work really closely with my clients to find out, well, what's what's feasible for, for content? They may want to have a blog. They may love the idea of blogging, but realize that nobody on the team is that great a writer. And the only person that actually has time to be doing this is the marketing intern that's be go that's going to be going away at the end of the summer anyhow. So those are issues that we have to contend with before making any kind of recommendations if we want them to be sustainable. And that process is uh, it's also the act of kind of getting close to the client and saying, what's realistic? Just because you're available to do something or someone on your team is, availability is not a skill set. Right. Um, do we need to hire different people or train in different ways so that this is sustainable? Um, and those are all the kind of questions that have to feed in then to mm. a governance plan and to an editorial calendar and editorial mm. style guidelines. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and then, um, and then who's going to be in charge of, uh, you know, writing the uh, color dress, you know, tweets? You know, that's, you know, exactly. Yeah. We, we need to fly by a seat of pants. Who's going to be the guys who's going to be, who's, who's, who's on call to answer <laughs> the, uh, the dress color issue and the, the llama issues. So mm-hmm. governance is always an issue, but, um, how many times do you walk into, uh, I, I just, uh, it's, it's really important. Uh, recently I was kind of reading around like the importance of a company where like everyone actively blogs, 
Is that have you have you noticed that lately in clients where like uh, people are just you know they're they're asking a lot more for employees to blog a lot more. I am seeing more more and more organizations w- that have gotten past the idea that um, social media is just the purview of a social media department or just the responsibility of the marketing department. So I am seeing more organizations that realize that they can't really control that. So it would be better if they can support how all of their employees are using social media and mm-hmm. possibly give them more responsibility to to engage like through their blog, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I feel like I'm also seeing more organizations that are saying, yeah, we're going to have everybody blogging, right. but then they're not focusing on, well, what's the workflow that needs to support that? Are we incentivizing people to blog or just asking them to? Right. And are we creating the time and space and the tools in their in their workflow then to be able to support that kind of creativity. I right. think blogging, like um, like any kind of content creation, has an opportunity cost. If people are focusing on that kind of content creation, it means they're not putting their creativity elsewhere. And that may be perfectly fine mm-hmm. as long as we're realistic about the time that people have in their day and what else we're asking them to do and that sort of thing. Does the do you think that with it, that sort of scenario that Chris just brought up, is there um, and I I bet this is going to be one of those it depends answers or probably um, I it anyway. I it. Um, just uh, when there is more of that content coming in from those different voices, does that basically come back to well, is the goal that all the voices are heard, or is it more about kind of having a unique tone that is cohesive at the end? Or does it just come down to what the goals are? Um, I was just about to say, well, it depends. But I think in I think the um, the challenge in many organizations is realizing that um, a company is not a monolithic entity. A company comprises mm-hmm. people, um, and those people do all have unique voices. We can't mandate that they all sound the same. And frankly, you wouldn't want them to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in most cases where you've got multiple bylines in a blog or in any kind of publication, um, you've done that. You've gone through the process of aggregating people with different strengths and hiring a diverse um, talent pool because you want to have those diverse perspectives. You want to have many voices at the table rather than just kind of a bunch of robots that are able to repeat the same thing over and over. But that's also, I think that's a relatively new way of thinking about corporations and brands and how they engage with their audiences. I mean, if we look kind of back in industry um, and certainly at a lot of more traditional organizations um, and corporations over the past 50 years, the role of industry was to be able to get really efficient at cranking out the same thing over and over and over. And because of that, we had assembly lines and then people were more and more replaced with robots and more efficient um, and they didn't require breaks. And that's great for produce the same thing over and over and over. But I think when we look at more modern organizations, when they're not looking to simply replicate the same product again and again, but create equally positive but very tailored experiences for their um, for their users and for their consumers, um, we don't want to just have the same voice constantly coming out of that organization, especially if we've got a lot of different people on the corporate blog. So I think as organizations, 
organizations kind of approach that that realization and maybe move through that maturity model, they realize the value in having a lot of different voices that can maybe reiterate and underscore and support the same points, but by putting their unique spin on it. <laughs> yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Um, that is a really interesting thing to see that there are, uh, that the curation of those voices, um, the different voices is becoming a part of a lot of the brand now that it doesn't have to be like, we are this one thing, we are this one goal, and we're actually a collection of things. So yeah. I think that's an interesting model to see. And I think it's um, it's humanizing, too, when mm-hmm. brands acknowledge that it isn't one per- person that's on the same Twitter account 24-7, but rather mm-hmm. that Twitter account comprises many humans that mm-hmm. have shifts and take breaks and whatnot. Right. Yeah, it, it's also... And I, uh, I think... Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I mean, unless, because uh, I don't know if it is always abundantly clear, but because people have relationships with people more so than with brands, um, it's great when brands can kind of stir up and increase the visibility of the humans that they comprise. A little bit, but uh, so do you have any, where should, where would be a good place to go from here if, if, if I want to learn more? about uh, brand and content strategy and so that's so where was it any books any blogs any articles uh, sure um, well there's a number of excellent conferences that are going to be coming up over the next few months um, that are either all about content strategy or um, in which content strategy is is featured heavily which I'm really excited about um, there's uh, the Intelligent Content Conference is coming up uh, in late March after South by Southwest. I'm going to be appearing at South by Southwest um, this year, and I'm really excited because this year I'm not doing a talk, but I'm going to be there formally as a mentor. Um, oh, cool. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited about that. So um, if uh, if folks are going to be in Austin and want to schedule a time to, uh, to talk, um, I think I've got like an hour block in the schedule and you can grab a, a chunk of that cool. um and awesome. uh yeah so good opportunities to talk breaking into content strategy freelancing dogs talking in cinema <laughs> all of those are good awesome. um and uh and then also following um intelligent content conference uh coming up in april i believe there's the now what conference in sioux falls mm-hmm. um and uh the confab events main conference in minneapolis is coming up um also they just recently released the um the schedule and list of speakers for confab intensive out in portland which mm-hmm. is going to be a great time because it's all workshops and i'm going to be going to be leading a workshop there specifically around establishing a message architecture so that'll be a good time too and then um early on in uh in the podcast we talked a little bit about carnegie mellon and i'm excited because i'm going to be back in pittsburgh in june speaking at uh, web design day and um and content strategy is going to be featured pretty heavily there as well then I think for folks that aren't, yeah, there's a wealth that they can be reading um, on certainly on the different blogs coming out of those conferences, um, as well as the Brain Traffic blog, um, my own blog at appropriateinc.com. Um, and uh, and then Alyssa Part has been featuring a lot on content strategy lately. Um, I know uh, Eileen Webb just had a wonderful article there. Um, yeah, Lisa Marie great. Martin's been writing a lot for it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So. Lots and lots and lots of good resources out there. Right. 
and I'm going to throw in that content strategy. Someone's going to happen again this year too. So, so people don't want to travel. Excellent. Yes. But, yeah. But uh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. So see, you don't even have to travel to go to a, to go to a <laughs> conference because there's virtual yeah. events you can take advantage of too. Yes, pants are optional if you want to, <laughs> but PJs are a must. But uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah, I think this is great. Uh, thank you so much for, for being with us today, Mara. If you have any questions for us at all? I'm curious to hear more about um, what you're seeing kind of as you interact with, with other speakers and um, with other parts of the industry. What do mm. you see as the big challenges that content strategy needs to be confronting more head on? Uh, it's the same old questions <laughs> I see. Is this like, Who's going to write this content? <laughs> Just like is, uh, is the main thing in the tone. Um, I really want to learn more about message architecture, so I'm going to like look up the intensive that uh, that workshop you're going to be doing. So I want to see what the I guess the syllabus, the abstract for it is. So I want to see what that is all about. But uh, yeah, uh, and then the challenges that other industries are having, I think, is this this, this responsive design. I mean, uh, I'll talk to Sam, talk to Sam too. But is this responsive design is still? I think we got a better handle on some things. Oh, but yeah. uh, but we still have you know the responsive images thing is still still a pain in, in the butt uh, is uh, for people so it's it's kind of a mm. uh, just in terms of the content I mean and the solution is this is the, this is the awesome solution is that we just generate a whole bunch of copies of the same image for different sizes and we just put that on the server and then we call it up and then so we said which is like a total uh, I think mankind solution is just a just make multiple copies and then pull mm -hmm. them out. But anyway, but I think mm -hmm. we can get a more refined solution hopefully down the road in the future. But uh, but also workflows because we have to deal with uh, so much content, so much, uh, you know, and then you see this with Grunt and Gulp. And so we're trying to get plugins to to, to, to take care of all this content and put in the templates and, 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 mm -hmm. and doing stuff. So there's a lot more that we're asking of our web designers and developers or front-end people to do more so than, than ever before. And... Um, and everyone's not freaking out, which is crazy. I thought people would be freaking out by now, but uh, but yeah, it's 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 part of the learning process, you know. That yeah. uh, Dave Rupert talks about leveling up, and is this this is I feel like that we're doing right now. The past year to two years is we're definitely leveling up a lot more uh, as an approach to uh, to dealing right. with a device, so with that. And that's what Karen McGrain's like. Also, like the analogy with uh, splitting different images, you know, small one mobile friendly image, a large image for hero graphics, if you will. You know, you have to deal with chunking of content, which is like, it's, it's awesome if you have the manpower. But sometimes, you know, we talk about message architecture. You still have to get that right tone because, like, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, the tone for 144 tweet uh, is how you do that is going to be different than if you have a paragraph on a blog post to deal with. And so it's it's right. going to be kind of, kind of great. And, uh, you know, and I understand Twitter a lot more than I understand Facebook, you know, and a lot more. I don't. I, I still have no idea about Pinterest, but uh, <laughs> uh, so it's it's what it is. So that's why I feel about it. So I'm gonna be quiet now. Let's see. Answer, <laughs> that's so interesting because, like, so well, and so much of what you just said, though, mm -hmm. it again it goes back to the wetware. It goes back to the people. Are we asking them to do too much? Mm -hmm. um, I think that one of the first things you said with the problem with content is, well, who's still gonna do all of this? Yeah, and. Yeah, we got to yeah, fix let, the people problem around training and education and making sure we asking them for the right things. Right, you know, and then uh, you know, I work uh, or, or I am, you know, Austin is a is a tech tech startup scene that's probably behind 
uh, New York City and, and San Francisco. Like it's coming up, you know, with South by Interactive. I'm looking forward to seeing you again at yes. South by. And um, and um, I might slot an hour of your time for my tour. But uh, whole hour. yeah, whole hours. Like, yes, yes, an additional hour. Uh, is that uh, you know they just write content and sometimes you know the content just doesn't jive with what they're doing. Like uh, like I've there's one startup I don't know, I don't want to name names but it's just one startup I have in mind. It's like they have an awesome solution. They're like it's really disruptive. They're really doing a great job, but their content vibe is just doesn't in sync with what it is. And and part of it is this maybe I have to, you know maybe it's my me I'm not being the right demographic for them. But also I feel like you know I I could be a a, a consumer of their product, but I just feel like it doesn't really jive with with, with me. And so that's mm. you know, so yeah. So so I feel like a lot of startups are so busy getting the, the code out the door and, and getting out there that to make to make a, a viable product, a minimum viable product that they're not really seeing the little steps. And so and sometimes that's a luxury. You know, sometimes you just have to get the startup mm-hmm. has to get out the door so they can prove uh, prove a concept. But then they have to like part of that is it would go a long mile they, you know, to add that right tone and, and right right uh, feel to it. So but yeah. But also also right. is like, like right. who's gonna write who's gonna write that, you know. Yeah. So, but Sam, sorry. Mm. Of course, I'm going to come in uh, with this from the educational angle, but not just um, I feel with design and um, I'm making this assumption about content, which I know that making that assumption is very dangerous. But I do feel a lot of what the the many things that people have to do now, whether it is a web designer or content strategist, is educating whoever else they're working with, whether it's the developer or the designer or the strategist or the copywriter or the client and having to bring them into the process so that they understand the value of each of the steps that are being taken. And then on the other side of education, I feel like having a a web design, you know, 12 week immersive course and teaching that, that content was how the course starts in, in, in my mind. And, um, the last time I ran it, content came before design, Photoshop, Illustrator, any of that. Um, and this time we still did the, uh, we moved the code up front uh, just to get the technical side of being able to build something and then talking about content and moving away from lorem ipsum and things like that. But it still comes up that when you're building something as a designer and you're having to be that that generalist that does the logo, does the um, style guide, does the... Um, you know, a save for web for all the images so that you do have a site that loads quickly. Um, and also having to write the content, um, having to give those, and here's a cat walking by. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Um, she has to, she has to get her, her like one second. (laughs) But just having to give them enough of (laughs) enough of a, um, foundation understanding the value of content so that that can become a part of their design process (laughs) it's it's a lot to ask for but it is again something that's like impossible to ignore and just say oh you'll get content and teaching just to that ideal sure we'd love for their the content to be figured out and uh for designers to be a part of it but sometimes they're just handed lorem ipsum said oh we'll give it to you later and so just dealing with the different scenarios of that sort of thing yeah i know that freaks me out yeah 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 because without the content or at least without understanding the goals of the content how do you know what you're designing about Um, if only we could talk to each other first and say (laughs) what are we both working toward could that ever happen those are my flying cars collaboration that's my flying car (laughs) (laughs) margo how can people 
find you on the internet? I know we talked about it in the beginning, but... Uh, Margo at appropriateinc.com. Those are two best places to reach me. And if I'm not there, it's probably because I'm outside walking my dog. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Sam? I am Sam Cap across the board on almost everything except my website, which is samcapila.com. Okay, awesome. And I am uh, I'm Christopher Schmidt. I am at Teleject uh, on the Twitters. Um, really, that's I understand Twitter. That's about it. So <laughs> I, I don't blog as much as I should. So I don't know. I don't know what my message architecture is for my blog yet. So figure it out. But uh, you find me you, there. You uh, can work Twitter. on that. Can work. Too, yeah. <laughs> uh, also, I am on. Um, ChristopherSchmidt.com and where else? And definitely follow us more for podcasts at nonbreakingspace.tv mm-hmm. uh, and follow us at uh, YouTube uh, where we do these things live at mm-hmm. Nonbreaking Space Show on uh, YouTube. So you can subscribe there. And uh, also join us on our mailing list because we'll mailing, mailing out reminders about the show and transcripts and stuff like that too. So very shortly. That's about and it. And happy and happy belated birthday, Chris. Oh, thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, I'm really happy because I got a, a new uh, wall art thanks to Ari. So I got an ampersand on the back <laughs> on my wall. Nice LED light there. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks, Margo, for being with our guest today. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. 